0: Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we will be starting today in verse 9. We're going to be answering today that age-old question that probably all of you have heard, and that is, what about the poor native in Africa? <laughs> Ever asked that yourself? I sure have. Some feel that that question alone virtually disproves Christianity, that the Christian God would judge those who have never even heard of Christ. How could that happen with a God who is good or loving? What about the poor native in Africa or India uh, or America, the one who's never heard the gospel? How could a good God uh, judge them? Isn't he play, playing favorites here? Isn't he just a patriarchal, chauvinistic God of the West who we impose on the world? To which we would say no, because on top of all else that we have been seeing about God's judgments over the last few weeks, God is, today, we're going to see, eminently fair. He's eminently fair. We've been looking at the judgments of God in that have cycled through history on both men and nations. And we've seen that he's like a father who disciplines his children rather than just letting them run wild because he loves the whole of mankind and so he's actively involved globally and not just in America. Rather than just letting the whole world go to hell in a handbasket. No, he intervenes to bring men to their senses, to discipline mankind, and ultimately to draw them to him. That's his agenda. We've seen that his discipline, in his discipline, he is mercifully or kindly forbearing. That's Roman numeral one in your nails. So patient. And we've seen that he is eloquently focused when he judges men to bring them to their senses. That's Roman numeral two. And finally, he is, yes, imminently fair. That's Roman numeral three. It takes us from verse four to verse five of chapter two to verses six to 11 and following. Last week we saw that he is, or two weeks ago, we saw that he's eminently fair because he judges men by their deeds, by the consequences of their own behavior so they'll finally get a clue so they can see the folly of what they're doing this week we'll see that he's fair because he judges men point B in your notes by degrees not by what they've not seen but by the degree to the which they've responded to what they have seen how so well let's first look at the biblical explanation and there's a typo in your notes in the bulletin there should be biblical there before explanation this is the one place in Scripture where this doctrine uh, of how fair he is is really unpacked in Romans 2, starting in verse 6, where Paul says, he renders to each person according to his deeds. That's what we saw last time. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he renders eternal life. Who's God looking for? Well, the word seek here comes at the most emphatic part of the sentence in the Greek at the very end. And it reads like this, those who by perseverance in doing good, glory and honor and immortality seek after, seek after God. He's saying there are a lot of people like that in this world who don't yet know God. And we'll see how this can be apart from the grace of God. But Paul's focus here is on those who seek after. It's on the seeker, those who seek God. We know from elsewhere in scripture that no one seeks after God on their own. None of us can do that. As Christ says in John 6, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Paul's talking about the doctrine of prevenient grace. That is the grace that comes before salvation to draw men to himself so they can be saved. And a lot of people around the world in fact, all people are being drawn by prevenient grace and it's up to them what they do with it. So no man can come to God unless God draws him. Yet what, what Paul is saying here is that there's such mercy. We've seen mercy mixed with judgment all the way through this and here we see it again. Such is his mercy that not only does he woo the seeker, he rewards the seeker. Moving on now to verse eight. Those who, but those who are selfishly ambitious, that is who aren't seekers, he doesn't reward them and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, he renders wrath and indignation to bring them to their senses. The key word here is truth who do not obey the truth. He's talking uh, about those who do not obey the truth. He's not talking about those who obey or disobey the Bible, but who have never seen it. He doesn't judge them if they haven't seen the Bible based on whether they obey or disobey it. No, he judges them based on the truth that they have seen. And what truth is that? Well, it's the truth in the creation. We know this because the last time this word truth appeared was just one chapter before in chapter one, which tells us what Paul means here by truth in chapter two. The context is the best interpreter of the text. And so back in Romans 1.18, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth. And what, that mean, what he means by it there, if you remember, is the truth of God that all men see in the creation. We saw there that some suppress it, and now we see that some respond to it. So here in Romans 2, Paul's picking up where he left off in Romans 1. His focus here in Romans 2 is on those who have never heard about God except through the truth of creation, who have never seen the Bible on those who by perseverance in responding to that truth seek after God. You can either suppress the truth, as he says in Romans 1, or you can seek God through the truth, as he now says in Romans 2. And just so we don't miss the point, he goes on to flesh this out, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2. First he tells us what scorners do who scorn the truth and what happens to them verse 9 there will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil the Jew first and also to the Greek we've seen this as his discipline on those who do evil so that they'll turn from their ways but and what does the seeker do but he goes on to say there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for God shows no partiality that is He's not partial to Westerners or Americans who have the Bible or to Jews who have the law, the Torah. Um, no, No, his judgment is fair. And then Paul explains it further in the next verse, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish also without the law. That is, they won't be judged by the law, by what they'd never heard of. And all who have sinned under the law, that is those who have known the law, they'll be judged by the law, by what they have heard of. By that standard. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The doers, that is, God will judge them by the degree to which they do something in response to what they know by his prevenient grace. It's not on their own, he's drawing them. By how they seek to live up to what they know. And then he explains it again, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. And how do they know what the law requires if they don't have the law? Next verse, verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. How so? Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The conscience, he's saying, is the voice of God. They may not have the Bible, but they have the light of creation, chapter one. And now we see in chapter two, they have the light of conscience. And you can either suppress that light, you can even scorn it, as Paul says in chapter one, or you can seek God through it, as he says in chapter two. So putting the two chapters together through the creation everyone knows that there's a God behind it all and through the conscience everyone knows there's a difference between good and bad. And through the same conscience deep down inside they know that the one true God wants them to be good and not bad. The scorner Hates what he sees and hears and so he tries to make it go away by suppressing the truth. He doesn't like what God says about him and so he creates another God. He changes what he sees into a God that won't disapprove of who he is. And in chapter 1 we saw all the idols that we worship instead of God. The seeker on the other hand says, I want to find out more about the true God. This God whose goodness and greatness I see all around me, but uh, what am I gonna do about me? I'd better start getting serious about being good because my conscience is whipping me back and forth. And what, oh, God help me. And what happens to such a person, Paul says there, that when they try to live up to this goodness, their conscience will alternately accuse and defend them. And in that process, the rest of scripture tells us they'll be brought to their knees and brought to God. Paul couldn't be more clear. Those who in this way seek to live up to the light that they've been given, God will work things in such a way that they will eventually receive immortality. That is, he'll bring them to the true knowledge of God and they'll go to heaven. Because to those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will grant eternal life. He's summing it up, but there's a whole story there that brings them there as we'll see today. You can see this in Acts 17 where Paul preaches a sermon based on Romans 2. He teaches there in Acts 17 that God is so forbearing and fair that he overlooks the times of ignorance, he says, in people's lives before they come to see the truth. Paul Paul was in Athens in Acts 17, and he had just noticed, as most of you know, that that there was an altar to an unknown God, which for centuries, some of them had been worshiping in ignorance because they didn't fully know him, but they knew he must be there. Many in Athens were doing as best they could with what knowledge they had. They knew there must be something more to God than all of these gods and goddesses that were fighting each other that the rest of the Romans were worshiping. And so they set up an altar to honor this God to the unknown God. And in Acts 17.30, Paul goes on to say that God, again, overlooks the times of ignorance in that he doesn't judge these people in the same way that he judges people who knew more. He says here in Acts 17 that God works in such a way on an individual and on a global say, scale that men would seek him. Acts seventeen twenty seven. That's the same word seek as in Romans 2. He's unpacking it. In the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. The message version sums it all up like this, and I love this. God works, this is Acts 17, 27. God works in such a way that men would seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. That's the biblical explanation. But as we turn from the point one in your notes, the explanation, what are some examples of this? There are many, many historical examples. One day years ago, William Marcus Young, an American missionary to Burma, went to a marketplace to do some street preaching among the Shan people, most of whom were Buddhist. He felt compelled as he preached to keep holding his Bible high, to hold it high in the air. And then he saw why he felt compelled to do this because they had a prophecy about a man who had come with a book. And as he preached, holding his Bible up, a group of rural natives started to come toward him out of the throng of people that were gathering. He he thought, what are they gonna do to me? Soon they had him completely surrounded. And then in this outburst of powerful emotion, one of them pleaded with him to come with them to the mountains. And he said this, the person who pleaded, our people have been waiting for you for centuries. We even have meeting houses built in some of our villages in readiness for your coming. Some of them showed him their bracelets which were made of like coarse uh, rope that you tie people up with. And they said, we Lahu have worn ropes like these since the earliest times. They remind us of our bondage to evil spirits. And that a messenger of the sky God will cut these manacles from our wrists but only after he brings the book of the sky God to our very homes so come with us to the mountains. Tens of thousands of Lahu people eventually became Christians. Why? Well, just as the Jews were saved by their faith in the promise of the coming Messiah, so the Lahu people had faith in the promise that God had revealed to them. And they knew they were in bondage to sin. And they were repentant. They had faith in the promise that, of the one who would deliver them from their evil spirits and bring them the book of the sky God and build houses of worship by faith, proving their faith, waiting for him. Back in the 19th century, early anthropologists would ask people groups that they were studying a standard question, and that is, who made the world? Again and again, they were startled to hear these people groups respond, often with a happy smile, in one way or another, by saying, uh, talking about a single being who lived in the sky, just like the Lahu sky god. And then they would u- usually ask these people, is he good or bad? And they would always say, good. And then they'd often ask, show me the idol you use to represent him. And inevitably, they'd say something like, what idol? Don't you know that he must never be represented by an idol? In 1920, Dr. William Schmidt, an Austrian, set out to compile every alias of the Almighty, as he called them. All these aliases of the true God that they found all around the world. Schmidt found to his amazement that it took six volumes totaling 4,500 pages to detail them all. Probably 90% or more of folk religions on this planet contain clear acknowledgement of the existence of one supreme God. It's right out of Romans 1. And get this, one of the amazing characteristics of this sky god is his propensity to identify himself with the god of Christianity uh, or for the, the natives to identify the sky god with the god of Christianity once the missionaries come. One of the best illustrations of this is in the book of Acts. Uh, the book that comes just before the book of Romans, Acts chapter 10 is the story of the Roman centurion Cornelius who saw an angel in a vision telling him, to, as you know, to send for Peter. And that's how passionate God is that people come to him. He, again and again, you see him send angels to talk to them. And Peter saw a vision too. And God brought them together and Cornelius and all his family were converted. But get this, it says Cornelius... Was a devout man, one who feared God, Acts seventeen two, and yet he wasn't saved. It was prevenient grace. The angel told him in a vision that Peter shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, future tense. You and all your household, Acts eleven fourteen. And so this unregenerate Gentile was a devout man, one who feared God and who gave many alms to the Jewish people and who prayed to God continually, Acts 10.2. That is in the language of Romans 2, by persevering in doing good, he sought God. And God answered his prayer. What happened to Cornelius is a fulfillment of the promise of our verses for today in Romans 2 that God will render to each man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will in the end get them to the place where they'll have eternal life. And he's sovereign over all and well able to do that. Which is exactly how Paul sums it up in Romans 2.11. In fact, uh, well, and, and when Peter saw this God-fearing, God-seeking Gentile who ended up being saved, he summed it up by saying, I, must, I certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, Acts ten thirty-four, And that's just how Paul sums it up in Romans 2. There is no partiality with God. He loves all men. There are endless examples of this. If you're interested in reading more, I'd recommend a classic. Some of you may have heard of it called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Subtitled, Startling Evidence of Belief in the One True God in Hundreds of Cultures Throughout the World. There's so many examples of this, both culturally, whole people groups who have been prepared as well as individually. And today I'd like to close this part of it with a final example of how it worked out with an individual, with a, with a modern-day Cornelius, you might say. Back in 1969, William B. Erdman's Publishers, a well-known Christian publishing house, released a book by William Miller called Ten Muslims Meet Christ. Miller was a notable missionary who served for 43 years in Iran. One of the chapters of the book Uh, is is a story of Rahab Ali Nozad here's what Miller said about Nozad Nozad was a man of impeccable integrity and courage perhaps he was at his best when he presented the gospel of Christ to Iranians who had never heard it fanatics who came to annihilate us with their arguments found that he skillfully disarmed their prejudices and soon they were listening quietly to the old story of messiah in these discussions, he was always tirelessly fearless in his personal confession of Christianity, though it was the law of the land that an apostate from Islam should be killed. It was my privilege to be associated with Nozad for 20 years. I know him, he said. Hence, I feel qualified to say that whatever Nozad said, and we're gonna read what he said in a bit, whatever he said, he did see and experience and was indeed uh, ex- seen and experienced by him. In 1927, Nozad published in Persian the wonderful story of his conversion. This record was printed as a booklet outside of Iran without the name of the author, and it was circulated within Iran with great care. So here's a brief version of the autobiography of the kind of seeker that Paul is talking about in Romans 2. So let's pretend that we're all in the, uh, the living room together, all excited because we're about to hear a great story, a true story. Just sit back and listen for a bit. These are Nozad's words. In observing the tenets of the religion of my fathers, I was fanatically zealous. My prayers were said without neglecting the appointed times, the fast I kept. I remembered the martyrs, and I went on pilgrimages. My fanaticism went beyond those of my own age, yet sin had dominion over me, and I fulfilled all its desires. My heart was unsatisfied, and get this, my conscience rebuked me, right out of Romans 2. Yet I was a slave of sin. After a time, I found an acquaintance and friend who was scholarly and learned, and whose equal up to the present I have not yet encountered, Those who had an acquaintance with this person considered him an extraordinary character. He was a teacher and had pupils from families of the grandees and aristocrats. The branches of learning which he taught included medicine, anatomy, history, mathematics, religious jurisprudence, doctrine, metaphysics, physics, chemistry, Persian, and Arabic. About 70 years of life had passed over his head. Of the possessions of this world, he had nothing but a room filled with Persian books. By conversing with him, I became somewhat acquainted with the universe. But every time I brought the subject of religion into the conversation, he feigned ignorance and went off into other subjects. Finally, one day I said, why do you seek always to avoid the subject of religion? He answered, if I told you what you know, what I know, you would not have the endurance and forbearance to hear it. And if I told you what would please you, it would be contrary to my own convictions. I heard this sort of reply from him many times. Finally, one day I said to him, sir, whatever be the answer to the question, do not withhold it. Tell me what your question is. I said, be pleased to tell me what your religion is and what divine book you know to be the true one. He answered, I believe in God who is the maker of all the worlds. In that I have no difficulties because this creation cannot exist, this is right out of Romans 1, without a powerful and able maker whose existence and being are eternal. But I have no belief in any of the persons who have made pretensions to being prophets except Jesus. I asked, why are you unattracted to the others and yet captivated by the Christ? He replied, the others have done works which I can say were possible by the wisdom of men. But the things Jesus did are not the work of men. The deeds of Christ are, and get this, are so universally famous and well known that now in Iran, Arabia, Afghanistan, Turkestan, Egypt, Syria, if you ask a physician why he has not cured a patient, he will reply, am I Jesus the Messiah that I can give life to the dead? I required I inquired, with regard to the prophet Muhammad and the Koran, what do you say? He answered, neither in the Koran nor in Muhammad do I see anything that I consider to be of God. Islam is founded on the sword, pillage, blasphemy, obstinacy, selfishness, power, mania, and sensuality. I said, sir, The Koran, with its greatness, is there not something to be found uh, in it that you acknowledge as the word of God? Perhaps you have not studied it with care. He, He smiled and answered, the greater part of my life has been spent in the study of Islamic learning. In Islam, I am a religious leader, competent to practice religious jurisprudence. There is nothing in the Koran or Islam that is hidden from me. Whatever the verses of the Koran you wish, I will repeat them from memory. And then he said this, the Koran is a book without beginning or end, hopelessly incoherent and bewildering. I cannot describe what happened to me upon hearing those remarks. I engaged myself in a struggle to investigate and ascertain this truth. He was a seeker through deeds by God's provenient grace. After two years, I became certain that his statements to me were were not inflammatory or malicious, but were all true. Finally, the lamp of Islam in my heart was extinguished. I despaired of everything and all people. I had no belief in anything. I was not content with life. I said, would that I could get away from this masterless world. One day, it came to my mind that it would be well if I talked a bit with one of the Christian priests to learn what he had to say. Inasmuch as I was not acquainted with the priest, I searched, this is a true seeker, I searched until I found a learned Christian who was a Presbyterian minister, a missionary to Iran. Three times I went to his house. And every time, for several hours, I conversed and debated with him, but did not get the real meaning of a thing that he said. As I went out of the door of his house on the third day, there was nothing but barren land and a few mud walls. There was nothing and nobody, and I saw myself wandering solitary and alone in that desolate place. In a state of complete distraction and desperation, I raised my hands and said, Oh God, if thou dost exist and Jesus is from thee and the gospel is the remedy for the sickness of the world, guide thou me, for I am in a state of great perplexity. Suddenly, I saw above my head two spiritual forms whose countenances and clothing were like the color of the sky who said in loud tones, God is and Jesus is true of that rest assured and come. Immediately they disappeared. This vision and this sound threw me into a panic. A terrible fear took hold of me and immediately sweat poured from all over my body. I trembled in the heat of the noonday. I became so cold that my teeth, teeth, teeth chattered. But on account of this vision and the voices that I heard, I felt completely certain that I was not the same man I had been at first. All at once, Dejection, gloom, and resentment, desperation, and hopelessness fled from me as I believed. And a new happiness full of joy and deep tranquility took their place. In truth, I beheld myself a new man possessing a new life. And then he concludes with this. I have become acquainted with God through God himself. And I know that he is always and everywhere present and all the time he sees and knows and hears and speaks and he receives any person who comes to him, whoever and wherever he is. God will take care of the poor native in Africa especially as we become instruments of his love in their behalf like that Presbyterian minister was with Nozad. God's judgment is indeed eminently fair because he judges by degrees, by what we've done with what we see. And that is a good part of the message getting back to two weeks ago. When it comes to the Muslims of 9-11, Because so it is to be with us, especially with Muslims, supremely with them, we are to be there for them as agents of his prevenient grace. God called Israel to love Assyria and Babylon, the very Arabs who attacked them, we saw two weeks ago, and so it is to be with us. With all the nozads who you can be sure are around the world and who have flocked to our shores. And as we saw two weeks ago, we as a church have a long history of making ourselves part of that solution when it comes to Muslims. Nine of our 32 missionaries have an Islamic emphasis. The most recent being the upcoming seminar, as we saw at the beginning uh, of the service on the video, that will be Friday and Saturday night. Perfect application to all this, March 6th and 7th, two weeks from this weekend, And the goal of the seminar is that God would change our hearts and minds to match his love for them. Let me just say one more thing before we close. How many of you were in the Hall of Faith last week populating the journey wall? A whole lot of you were we've divided it all now into categories the transition team has onto on post-it sheets we put post-it notes that, have different, that, that relate to different categories one of them is missions and that's the biggest one the memories that you had and all the stories about our missions involvement and we really need your continued involvement today let me just tell you what we need Uh, The transition team, again, has categorized all the post-it notes on post-it sheets. So now the journey wall consists of sheets that are titled, there's one for loving family, there's one for missions, there's one for preaching, uh, for youth, and several others. And on the bottom of each of these sheets are answers to the question that's written in red, and that is, why is this so important to us? Why is missions? Why are youth? Why whatever? It's a key question when it comes to really understanding how we're uniquely wired as a body and who we ultimately need as a pastor. And once again, we need you and this time to help us answer this question. Why are they important to us? There are pens on stands there that you can uh, write on it. So having contributed last week to the post-it notes, please help us uh, finish off our post-it sheets. And think about missions. Why is World Missions uniquely such a priority here at FEC. We want to hear from God through the priesthood. Well, as the worship leaders come forward, let's, let, let's kind of consecrate ourselves to further his kingdom purposes for all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. Sing to him and as you sing. Ask him what do we have you to do? Take my life and let it be. What do you want me to do with my feet? Maybe he's prompting you to be at the seminar in two weeks. Whatever it is, Take it seriously and act upon it.